Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we continue on the journey that is Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, we had mostly put Cloud back together. Uh, it discovered that Cloud is, in fact, a real boy. Uh, Tifa had literally gone into his memories, and they shared a, a very intimate experience of remembering a, a shared past together and who Cloud really is, and have not just found their friend in the literal sense of, oh, there he is, because that was, I didn't know that for a while also, but they, they've really found their true, oddly enough, and this is kind of the point where Cloud kind of takes over as the leader of the team now that he's fully discovered himself and, and gives this confession to the team. I was never in Soldier, but we still have to do this thing. We still have to go and stop Sephiroth. And uh, the, the team aboard the High Wind gave us one more train analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's a good analogy, right? Like, because on the one hand, they bucked the destiny, the train, uh, of being born poor and living in the slums, but they've, they've put themselves on this other train where we've got to save the planet. And yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. The fact that Cloud brings up the train metaphor one last time is it's telling. It's also even further reinforced by the fact uh, that from a gameplay standpoint, this is really when the game becomes an open world game at this point. Not really what we think of in in a modern sense as an open world game, but for the time. So now there's this huge map that you can explore and you've got the high wind at your disposal for the first time. So you get the airship, you can fly around kind of wherever you want to go. Suddenly there's a bunch of optional content that is available to you. Most of which we're going to get to a little bit later on. We're going to put that off, but optional bosses and the weapons that open up, you can go and start breeding chocobos now, which is a whole other thing. Again, we'll talk about a little bit more later. Really, this is the moment where you're right, they they break that train analogy in terms of the themes and the plot, but also the game is now off the rails. You can decide what happens next, where for most of the game, it felt like it was a big open adventure, but it really is pushing you down a hallway, a linear path, just like in Final Fantasy X, just like in Final Fantasy XIII. For the first two-thirds of the story, you basically have to follow beat after beat after beat, but at this moment when you get the airship, you can now kind of choose what happens next. So speaking of uh, little little side stops, before we talk about what happens next, there's this really nice scene where if Cloud goes, if you take Cloud out to talk to, uh, you know, all the heroes are, are on the ship plus the airship crew, but Yuffie's not here on the bridge and she's, if you'll recall, uh, she gets motion sick, so she's out on the on the deck somewhere. And there's this nice little conversation where Cloud gives her some advice on how how to deal with motion sickness. Yeah. That's sweet. It's cute. Got to appreciate that. And that that Cloud fully embraces this new version of himself already. Like, oh, I'm not going to be right. that kind of shut off introvert that I was before because that was never really me. I was being something I thought I was supposed to be. It's pretty cool. I also feel like it's reinforced in the remake and seems like when he dances at the Honeybee Inn 
And you go like, yeah, sure. no, he's he's going to do the thing well, right? He's going to go all in, which is also mirrored in the Final Fantasy VIII waltz, where Squall can't do it at first, and then he just has to be able to do it well. These guys have to be able to perform <laughs> whatever it is. Right. Right? They're they're all bards, basically. Yeah. right? they're all they're all performance guys. Yeah. I actually think Final Fantasy VII remake. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast or just to you, but I feel like Cloud is very absorptive. Yeah. Uh, in a way, like he he sort of he pays attention and he learns how to do things he's seen other people do before. So right. he learns how to be like Zach because he's watched Zach. He learns how to ride a motorcycle like Roche in the remake. Right. Because he's watched Roche. Right. So now that he's finally himself again, you know, he's learned how to to open up because he's around his friends. Because of Barrett and Tifa and Yuffie. And, yeah. 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 No, I love that. And maybe, Not so much Vincent. <laughs> we'll <hold it> there. <laughs> um, and maybe that actually explains a lot, again, if we're going to do our best to justify the clunky writing of the Ketchi slash Kate Sith character, who, again, I have to imagine they're going to do much better in the remake because there's so many interesting ideas here, but it's kind of in this conversation going on in the airship that Kate Sith comes around and says, you know, I can tell you anything you need to know about the Shinra. And all of a sudden, he's not a spy on us. He's a spy for us. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we get the the party comes to understand that you know, Shinra's plan is to try to get the huge materia that they know is under Junin and use that to try to destroy Meteor, presumably by using a rocket and there's some question about where they're going to get a rocket, though, if you've been paying close attention to where we've been throughout the game, you might recall uh, where that's going. But first things first, uh, before again, you can decide to go and do a bunch of stuff here. And there's an irony to that. There's like impending doom from several different directions. Right. And now you can suddenly just go off and race chocobos if you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Right. If you want to press on with the most immediate next thing, you want to stop Shinra from getting that huge materia in the reactor underneath Junin, and so you return to that city. It's worth noting that the town underneath the uh, Shinra base, the little fishing town that is Junin, is okay. Like, I thought for sure that place would be wrecked by the sapphire weapon coming in and creating that huge tidal wave. So it's nice to know that the poor little fishing village uh, literally underneath the Jinnan Fortress and its cannon is okay. Yeah. There's also an interesting scene here as the team is kind of, you know, breaking in and doing the things you do in an RPG as you go in and have a dungeon and you fight off the bad guys and stuff. And Cloud is being very confident and very leaderly, like I was saying. He's really kind of taken that step. And Barrett turns to him at one point and actually has this great language. says, hey, I was the leader first, man. Which I love as a line because he doesn't even fight him on it any further. And even the way that's phrased, again, some of the writing in this is clunky, but I love the way that that's phrased because it inherently suggests he recognizes he's not anymore. Sure. But he, he still wants that respect and he, he deserves it. Absolutely. But I think he recognizes that he's not as central to the conflict. Like his, his story is still important Right. But he doesn't have as personal a connection to Sephiroth and everything surrounding Sephiroth that Cloud does. Right. 
Yeah, and it's a great moment of recognition from Barrett. So I love that. Again, it's kind of a continuation of their relationship arc, which is one of my favorite, most satisfying relationship arcs in in Final Fantasy. Honestly, between Cloud and Barrett, you know, we talk all the Cloud and Tifa, Cloud and Aerith, you know, Cecil and Rosa, Squall and Renoa. Like, what about Cloud and Barrett, man? <laughs> what about the bromance between these two? It's beautiful. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so our heroes. Uh infiltrate the Jinnan base. There's some fights. You take an elevator down to the underwater reactor. It is in teal. Like anytime anyone says Jinnan underwater reactor, it's in bright teal, which is, I mean, they've done that throughout the game, right? It's kind of shades of the keyword system from Final Fantasy 2. Just this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Yeah. There's a bit of a dungeon here. There's a cool underwater tunnel where you get to see the sea life out and about and you, you go to the reactor. Yeah, this is visually interesting. It, it is. Uh, you kind of get the runaround trying to find the huge materia. You like see the subs and then you go through the base and then you come back to the subs because they're loading the huge materia on one of them. You get another kind of boring mini game where you chase the red submarine with your submarine and shoot it down. Another <laughs> running theme. And this is why they're remaking it. And I'm not going to stop making that point. Ton of good ideas. Not all of them well executed. <laughs> Right. And this is one of those mini games that will show up at the Gold Saucer, so you can replay the sub fight. And then uh, there is actually, I think, an interesting bit where Cloud has a bit of a breakdown. He seems to be claustrophobic. He's not, he's like, oh, the sounds and it's too close and there's all the lights. And he sort of gets over it by saying, you know what, if I'm driving, I feel better. So if I'm in control, if I'm doing a thing, I can handle my claustrophobia, which is interesting. Yeah. Another interesting just wrinkle to Cloud as a person to keep adding to that character. I love that. It's also mirrored by Aerith, who is agoraphobic. She has a fear of wide open spaces, big expanses, particularly the sky, which is talked about in much more depth in Crisis Core and in the remake, particularly the very last line of the remake. So interesting extra character development in there. One of the many reasons why we love these people so much. They feel real. And then we've got the submarine. There is a, a couple quick things I want to mention about. You, you can go underwater now, right? So you've got the airship. You can go in the air. You've got the submarine. You can go underwater. There are a couple things you can do. There's an airplane that's gone down where you can find Sid's best limit break, and you can fight Reno and Rude. Actually, Emerald Weapon is down here. You don't want to fight Emerald Weapon if you're not ready for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And there's a couple other things that we might get to, but the the fact that you can also explore the uh, the world underwater is pretty cool. Yeah, and one other thing about this is, you know, it's furthering of that technology, right? The the advancements throughout the history of the Final Fantasy series, you would not have seen a submarine in any of the other games. It would not have made sense, but except for one. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, and the history of vehicles in Final Fantasy, obviously, always important, right? There's things you got to unlock at certain points throughout all of the games. And so we get the submarine here, and then there's another technological vehicle that you don't get to pilot, but that we're going to get to here in just a moment. Because, as you were just saying, you know, our, our heroes essentially arrive just too late, right? They get there to try to stop Shinra from loading up the huge materia, but they've done it. They're off. To, of course, Rocket Town. Where else would you go? There's that rocket, of course, if you recall from the Sid episode when we first met him, that never got to launch. 
because uh, his wife, girl, scientist, mm-hmm. person, right. <laughs> had seen an issue and didn't let them go through with the launch and therefore ruined his dream and therefore he treats her like crap. And he, well, Which he is kinda not a good reason. Everyone like <laughs> crap. And, yeah. uh, you know, and as we saw when we were in town, that, uh, that rocket was still kind of just sitting there. So it appears Shinra's plan, as much as their plan has been before, again, the sort of corporate militarists get the big energy weapon thing loaded up on a rocket mm-hmm. and send that at meteor and it'll blow it up. Right. Plan. Right. It's a plan, right? That is, well, it, it's a plan. <laughs> it's a plan. Our heroes though think maybe we should use, try using materia to stop meteor and or Sephiroth and or the weapons, or maybe there's a way to do this right. So if they send it up there and blow it all up, then we've got no options. Right. So, right. There's a, so we, so we get to Rocket Town and we're like, we're going to get on the rocket, right? We're going to stop things. Yeah. And th- there's an interesting line here where Cloud says, you know, there's a, there's a lot of wisdom and history tied up in this huge materia. You know, maybe we shouldn't be blowing it up. But also, I, I kind of feel like, so we got to three pieces of huge materia before Shinra. They've only got one. So we got the Coral one. We got the Mount Condor one. We took down the sub and got one from that. But they've still got one other piece right. that they've now taken to Rocket Town and put on this rocket. Right. So did they not need all four pieces? Like, I feel like this is one of the clunky pieces of this story. And maybe it's just sort of MacGuffin. It doesn't really matter. It's just the item to push forward the plot. But I do feel like it's not real well spelled out what is the conflict between using the huge material to try to blow up Meteor and not? Right. Like, is it just mean because it's because materia is kind of like magicite and that it's part of the soul of the planet and we shouldn't use it for that purpose? Is it just, you know, you know is it like we shouldn't allow for the creation of weapons of mass destruction? Because if it would work and it's not, and like I'm not sure what exactly the objection is. Yeah, they are trying to draw some kind of line between using the materia as they believe it is intended and its sort of magical purpose versus just strapping it to a rocket and and launching it into something and and hoping that it's just sort of magical power will blow it up, right? Right. Um, It certainly helps that it's Shinra's plan versus our plan, right? But that's sort of the conflict at play here and why they get away with it from a storytelling perspective. But I agree. And we've talked before, and we'll get into this just a bit more too, but even like the name Huge Materia, this whole plot can be smoothed out and and explained better and be given a less silly name. (laughs) Right, right. Like if it were me, the the objection would be, you know, something along the lines of, well, if we use this, you know, magical warhead to blow up Meteor, who's to say it won't screw up something else? You know, there, there would be some sort of a, well, a reason why and, it's not a good idea. And as we'll see, you know, spoilers for in just a few minutes, it's not going to work. And so maybe there could even right. just be literally somebody saying, hey, this might make things worse because, well, it does. So you're right. There, there, right. That needs to be spelled out better. Instead of doing that, Sid and Cloud have this interesting, still very interesting, though maybe less pragmatic conversation, philosophical debate about science and wisdom and magic. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, right? Because Sid's like, you know, I, I trust in, in science more than magic. Yeah. And I, I think we should give it a shot. Right. Like, if this is going to work, why shouldn't we do it? Right. 
And I, I just feel like that as much as I like the, the dichotomy being explored, I feel like it's not, I feel like the two sides are not well-defined, yeah. which makes it hard to have the conversation. Right. So again, it's a lot of good ideas in here. This really needs to be fleshed out. And hey, that might be why they're remaking this. I don't know. I'd sure. Spitball. Maybe they wanted to take another swing at this conversation specifically. This one specifically. But <laughs> to what they, so what are they selling us here then? If all of this is kind of clunky, what are they doing? Well, actually, they have this whole moment about why are we standing on the rocket in the first place? And isn't it dangerous to be here when they're trying to do this launch? And Sid says, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. Share us working on the repairs. It's, this thing isn't going to launch for a while. It takes a real shit. Mr. Re- Again, part of his not being respectful of, of others and what especially of her, right? But then yeah. that long sequence <laughs> pipes up. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're standing there on the rocket and he goes, Oh, she finished the repairs, didn't she? (laughs) (laughs) Take that, Sid. Oh, man. And so this really is about Sid's, if you want to call it a redemption arc, but this is the the kind of conclusion of his personal story that we're getting here. And we also, this this really cool scene that we get next, because then the rocket blasts off with... Cloud and Sid and whoever you've taken in your party with you. And we get this great FMV, as they were back in the day, a little cut scene. And again, it's hard to explain to people who weren't teenagers in 1997. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what it was like to see a thing go to space. And we had seen this in Final Fantasy IV with a magic whale boat. Right. But this was... It's just a rocket taking off in in a semi-believable, again, they just talked about all the stuff about science way, and, and our team just ends up in space, looking down on the planet, and it's so cool. And Sid, really for the first time since we've known him, stops being a dick for a minute, and just actually gets to do it, goes, I, I made it. It, it. It's outer space. I'm here. It's really cool. It is. It's it's a really neat scene. It's also worth noting that I, I think this is our last, uh, the last we hear of Palmer. But Palmer's the one who comes over the radio and says, oh, yeah, I've, I've set off the launch. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was me. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, Shara finished her repairs on time. And, and Palmer, Palmer pushed the button. Launched us into Lovely. space. Um <laughs> But Sid does make mention that there's an escape pod, so... Yeah, yeah, because he thinks ahead. Like, for all that this guy's a pain in the ass... Yeah. Like, in case of emergency, I put a, an escape pod on here. Don't you worry your pretty little heads. Yeah, right, right, exactly. But then Cloud, you know, does sort of convince him, hey, you know, we got we to gotta get the huge materia back. We, we, we can't right. go through with this plan and, and Sid kind of agrees and he goes what about all that science I believe in science stuff you said back in the days I just wanted to go to space <laughs> right I just, right I, I had to be on this rocket right now and I can't fault him for that either yeah. On the, yeah I mean that's I get it I really do yeah because I mean this is what he's worked for forever this is what he wanted the others didn't have to be here they chose to be here right, right. 
Sid could have done this on his own. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Uh, I don't think this is a dick. I don't, I don't think wanting to go to space is a dick move. All the, almost everything else he does is kind of a dick move, but this I'm fine with. Right. Well, then he has a, a few moments here, right? Because aboard this and, and we're like, okay, we, there, there's a little mini game where you got to kind of figure out through logic, the right sequence of numbers to press so that you can get the huge materia back. Another random Final Fantasy VII minigame. Uh, but then, of course, the the whole module shakes. Houston, we have a problem. That whole thing. Red light goes off. Last thing you want to see when you're in space. And um, it's hard to tell exactly what, like, Sid gets stuck, trapped in the, yeah, the, in the hallway it, here. The something falls on him. Yeah. And these RPG heroes aren't strong enough to lift it off them, so whatever. Yeah, this, again, whole sequence pragmatically doesn't make sense, but thematically is very strong. Yes. Because the whole team, you know, Cloud and friends go in to try to help him rather than just, you know, and he's saying, get out, come on. I got to go to space. I got to live out my dream. I am stuck as hell. You guys have got a matter of a minute or so to get on the escape pod and get out of here. And he even, there's a, there, there's a Grolix in here, and I have to assume he tells Cloud, you're really fucking stupid <laughs> for trying to save his life, right? Like, he's, right. he's got no respect for his life even at this point. Right. But then he also muses to himself just in time that it was Tank 8 that blew up. Yep. It was the malfunction that Shira was worried about this whole time. And he says, Shira, you were right. And then in true RPG fashion, she appears. <laughs> She's there the whole time. There. <laughs> um, and then he says something that, again, ooh, the Grolics here. I'm pretty sure he was meant to call her a stupid bitch in this moment. Uh. And it's just like, ah. But again, he's, at this point, not for doing things bad but for trying to save him and then there's this dot 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 the most important line in Sid Highwind's entire character arc sorry yeah he got there yeah uh, uh. and that, that moment when he find and he just goes she was right she was right the whole time and then he's mad at her Calls her something probably horrible, and then just says, "You know what? I'm sorry. Good. You, yeah, you should be. Who's gonna be making the tea now, <laughs> Sid? Make your own goddamn tea. <laughs> Down and drink your tea. And then for tea, some Sid. reason, this random scientist girl is able right. to help them lift this thing off of Sid that they couldn't before and everyone's able to escape. <laughs> How sh- her showing up solves this problem, I do not know. This is silly. Right. But again, like you were saying, it's practically it makes no sense. Thematically, how many times has Shara saved Sid's life? Right. And just put this on the pile. Right. Add it to the list, right? So, they get in the escape pod, everyone hops in. I really love this scene, too, as they sort of fall back toward Gaia and just look out that small circular window from the pod. It mirrors to me the gold saucer scene, the date, you know, where you're just in the gondola and you're just kind of looking out the window 
and everything. Of course, you're seeing a lot more because you can see the whole planet out the window. And also just that moment of like, yeah, you were in space for five or 10 minutes or whatever it was. And your lives yeah. were in imminent danger the whole time. But you even as they slowly fall back, you go, wow, what a scene. And yeah. we, we'd really never seen anything like that in video games before. It was cool. It was really cool for all the blocky graphics and, and all that. Final Fantasy VII hits some really cool notes. Yeah. So then the rocket, by the way, titled Shinra 26, and it has Shinra spelled on it with the dash in the middle. <laughs> right. These these corporate guys and their corporate space travel, by the way. That's I got to say. There, there's a line coming up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a big parallel. Okay, so yeah, but it it does crash into meteor, and just scares the shit out of everybody. <laughs> just everyone right. on the planet, just absolutely horrified. Yeah, there are some folks in Midgar like looking up at the scene. Yeah. Bugenhagen's in his planetarium, like watching the model version mm-hmm. of it from his mm-hmm. real time planetarium, I guess, which is super cool. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and it just, it appears as though Meteor is intensifying. And I think, you know, what we get out of this sort of collage of images is just the people of the planet are falling deeper and deeper into despair. Right, and for good reason. Yeah. And and now Meteor, like, it, it did get hit with a rocket, and there was, I guess, some other explosiveness to it. Sure. Because even without the huge materia, it blows up. And, and basically cracks the outer crust of the meteor but then parts of the core of the meteor are hanging on to other parts of the crust with like these electrical tendrils and it's still going it's still falling straight from midgar yeah it's so it's just scarier looking now yeah it it didn't work it may have made things worse and you know back aboard the airship barrett says something you know back to sid's thing and everybody and and it's what a thing for Barrett to put this line in the mouth of Barrett, but he says, you know, I kind of hoped it would work. Right. But yeah, even like he's even like, I hoped Shinra's plan would have worked and he's been trying to destroy those dudes from the beginning. But yeah, we still wanted Meteor to go away. That would have been great. Yeah, absolutely. Like, cause it threatens us all just as Shinra threatens us all. This is a much more immediate threat. Right. Also, Tifa's got a great line here, too, that I really love because people are, are starting to panic, as you would yep. in this situation. And I almost want this tattooed on myself. Tifa yells out, don't worry, think. Yeah. I love nice. that moment from her. Don't worry, think. Because everyone's just freaking out. And then Sid, to kind of codify you know kind of the postscript on him being a new person now him having kind of turned over a new leaf backs her up jumps into the conversation says tifa's right panicking isn't going to do any good right now we've got to figure this out and cloud's still having an existential crisis talking about how (laughs) planet still feels so big and what how are we supposed to solve this problem it just feels so big and then sid gets philosophical on everybody he says, but it's also so small. And we're just up there looking at it in space, floating in the darkness. With Sephiroth festing, festering inside the planet, he says. And then he gives one of my favorite lines of the entire game. And he says, 
This planet is like a sick kid trembling in the middle of this huge universe and someone's got to protect it. And that's us. And then everyone's like, wow, dude, deep, bro. <laughs> when did, you know, I guess going to space, they say going to space changes people. Like that's what those rich yeah. douchebags kept saying when they did that. And uh, it, it appears to have a, an effect on Sid here. Right, right. Like if you listen to people, you know, Buzz Aldrin, right? Or Senator Kelly, like they'll talk about, yeah, going to space and you see the planet and this tiny blue marble and so on and so forth. And it, it moved me and it changed me. And I learned about, we got to take care of each other. And we got to take care of the planet. But then like, you know, Jeff Bezos came back from his <laughs> freaking trip and he's like, oh, we should put factories up there. Like, you, God damn it. Can you imagine we, if Rufus go back and Heidegger and Shira again had gotten to... I know. They would have missed the whole... Yeah. Because you, you made the point that Rufus might have had a face turn recently. So he might get it. But the rest of these guys are like, oh yeah, we could put weapons factories up here and rain our missile dicks on the whole planet wherever we wanted. Right. Assholes. Right. So now that, you know, Tifa and Sid have got everyone sort of recentered and reminded of we're the heroes of the story. We are not done. We're not dead yet. As long as we're all breathing, we have got to solve this problem. Everyone, yeah, all right. A prep speech from Sid. Who knew that was coming? We're feeling great. And then they all go, all right, how? <laughs> <laughs> what do we do, Sid? Anyone got an idea? Sid, you got an idea? He's got, got nothing. He goes and sits I down. I got no, a lot of nothing. <laughs> like the music cuts for, you know, two or three seconds. Yeah. No, I got nothing. Nothing. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, his, his triumphant hero music just cuts out. I have no idea. But then, just before everyone else, Red 13 hears a sound. And almost by him asking if everyone else heard it, it's like we can start to hear it. And we've seen this a little bit in Remake, too. They do this when, like, Aerith will touch Red, right? And now he, they're both kind of glimpsing into the future. We don't know the full story there yet or, or an alternate reality, whatever's going on there, right? But they have this extra connection to the planet and it's here in the original game the ancients and red 13's people have this deeper connection to the planet i think it's interesting that he hears it first and then after he says this line of dialogue hey did you all hear that then we the players start hearing this sound that he says is the scream of the planet yeah and we heard that before right back in cosmo canyon right and so, that makes Red go, oh, right, 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 okay, this all really does have something to do with the planet as well. The planet appears to be weighing in on the situation. Remember, we've got a personified Gaia here. We're just, we were told about it by Bugenhagen earlier in the story, but not all the way. So it is time to return. They realize it's time to go see Grandpa, and it's back to Cosmo Canyon. As you arrive back at Cosmo Canyon, there's a great line, actually, from someone that just sort of meets you at the front of town who remarks on the color of that unlucky star. Huh. <laughs> I just thought that was a nice piece of writing and, and a way to solidify that the doom that people are feeling, the impending doom, is, is very real right now. And so our team makes their way to, of course, Bugenhagen's 
planetarium and, and study area. And he starts telling Cloud, you know, you've got to search deep within yourself. You have the answer to this problem. And Cloud's, and this is great. I actually, you know, we were giving them so much harsh time. I think, uh, <clears throat> I'll say it this way. We were being very critical earlier of some of the clunkiness of the storytelling. I think rightfully so. And some of the writing and stuff. The, the opposite goes on here where they give you extraordinary reasons, in my opinion, for why this plays out the way it does. Because Bugenhagen says, search within yourself, Cloud. You've got the answer. And Cloud says, I can't trust searching within myself, man. Uh-huh. I've got real memory problems, is how he describes it. But it's like it obviously goes deeper than that, right? And Bugenhagen just pushes a little bit further and says, you... You remember a lot from your journey. Think about what you remember from your journey. Cloud, of course, emotional person and and now kind of really, and he says, I remember Aerith, of course, a lot. I think about Aerith a lot. And Bugenhagen has this great sort of cryptic line, but he gets there and he says, you haven't remembered, haven't forgotten. Aerith was right there all along, right by our side. He says, our side, not your, right by our side. She was so close we couldn't see her. What Aerith did, the words she left behind. And then he just trails off. And everyone in the room gets very somber and starts kind of feeling and talking about, you know, remembering their feelings about Aerith. And, and so now they're just having an emotional memory together, right? And Cloud says... She said she was the only one who could stop Sephiroth immediately. Now we're thinking about the, the problem logically. We had we lost a friend. It just, our friend died and it sucked and we went on trying to solve the problem. We didn't think about the logic of it. And Cloud says she said she was the only one who could stop it. And then Tifa jumps in with, but she's gone. So it, what are we gonna do? And Barrett says, we ain't no ancients. You know, we like so. So okay, but but we're starting to put pieces together. Earth, the ancient, she had a solution. We are not that. Where are we going? And then Sid again, thinking about other people now in life, and not just about himself. Just musing aloud, and 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 in frustration, you know, why did she have to go off to that place? Why did she have to go off to that place? And that's one of those moments, you know, in the movie or the TV show or the video game where the semi-related line of dialogue and the main character goes, that's it. What did she know? Why did she go there alone, Cloud says. Why did she go there and face Sephiroth alone? The answer to this question is going to get us where we need to go. This is the thing we don't know, that we hadn't been worried about because we were just sad that she was gone. We didn't think it mattered. And so Bugenhagen says, you know, Red... What do you think? And, and he says, the planet is calling you. It's calling all of us. And Bugenhagen decides we've got to go back to the city of the ancients. And Sid even makes a, a little joke here. He goes, who boy, planet sure is calling. All right. Something's calling. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost that uh, uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, it's a sign. All right. It going out of business. <laughs> oh, man. Um, Imagine casting Annie Potts somewhere in our remake of Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Right. And then there's one kind of last thing you can do here once you've decided, okay, we've got to go back to the City of Ancients. You talk to Bugenhagen again. He teaches you how to kind of use the planetarium on your own so you can look at stuff. And he explains 
that actually each one of the huge materials that you have put together now corresponds to each of the different kinds of magic, right? So there's a green one and a blue one. The blue is support magic and the, the green is regular. So all of those, and you go, go around and they each light up when you do that. And then you get Neil Bahamut if you've collected them all. Um, oh, excellent. But he also explains... <laughs> More superpowers yeah, from the planet. <laughs> right, fantastic. But he also explains that they have special consciousnesses enclosed. And he doesn't get that much deeper into it. And, you know, he talks a little bit more uh, later on. We're about to get into, you know, white materia and all of that. But again, to your point, I, I think this could be done, the, the, the huge materia. And to rename it, now that I see, you know, he says in consciousness enclosed, I think of the infinity gems. Sure. You know, and there, I think okay. there's a parallel there. And then collecting them all and what is the power. This needs to be fleshed out better in the remake. But I also think you should call them prime materia or something like nice. that rather than nice. huge. But that's, well, yeah. And their origin should be a little better explained too. Like yes. it's sort of implied by Scarlet. Like they, like the, the, she, she describes the process, right? It's been, it's gone through this process of like the, the various uh, reactors were creating these huge materia, right? Or if we use your phrase, the prime materia. So it, somehow in the creation of them, they did, did Shinra create new consciousness? Did they create a new sapience? If Captain Picard were to have met these stones somewhere on his mission, uh, you know, on the, the mission of the Enterprise D, would they have considered it a life form right. and, and not have interfered? That is a fascinating idea. And that Scarlet and Heidegger just wanted to use them as weapons and Cloud and Avalanche and Bugenhagen want to get to know them is... Now, that's a fascinating dichotomy that would have maybe required too much time to get into and in here in the end game of Final Fantasy VII, but I do feel like is missing from the, the importance that they sort of superficially put on huge material. Yeah, it's right. It's like if the A plot is Cloud versus Sephiroth and the B plot is Avalanche versus Shinra and the C plot is, you know, whatever. this is like the Q plot. Or something. There's sure. so much yeah. going on, and it's probably why they didn't flesh too much of it out. But again, now they've got an opportunity to because there's some good ideas here. There's also this great moment when you know you wrap up this conversation. Bugenhagen says, "I can feel the workings of the planet and the smell of the wind," and then he flies yes. off. Of course, he does because apparently <laughs> he can fly. Um, That's how he gets up those ladders. There you go. <laughs> he doesn't need ladders. <laughs> uh, so you go, you head back to the city of the ancients, and you, you know you basically arrive at a, a central altar place to have this conversation. And Bugenhagen now being here in this place has much more clarity and says the planet is in a crisis. It says that we must search for holy, the ultimate white magic. He says. If a soul that is seeking holy reaches the planet, it will appear. Meteor, weapon, everything will disappear. Perhaps even us. It is up to the planet to decide. And then he says, the planet will decide what is ever best for the planet. I wonder which we humans are. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Yeah. I wonder also. I am. Yeah. 
So he says, if you speak to the planet, you can get the white materia and it will glow a pale green. And Cloud is, is starting to despair again, thinking that, you know, it's all over. Because it fell from the altar. It was Aerith's materia. And, and we don't have it anymore. The one she said did nothing. He said, well, maybe you just don't know how to use it. Right. Yeah. And then right in the middle of this emotional scene... There's like all this writing on the the altar that they're at, and Cloud asks if Bugenhagen can read it, and he responds, "It's all Greek to me." <laughs> Which what? First of all, yeah. weird, weird. Rant. We've got Korean barbecue and Cessnas. We can have the all Greek to me phrase, uh, I guess. I suppose so. <laughs> but I was wondering if that was maybe a little bit of a reference to to some of the Greek mythology that they're pulling on from. Sure. You know, so, but Cloud even responds like, this is no time for jokes. Uh, so what is it time for? Well, of course, it's time for a riddle, a music box, and a key. Yes, of course it is. And uh, a tiny little bit of gameplay here. And, and Bugenhagen takes the key over to, and by the key, I mean like a giant scepter, <laughs> you know, very ornate. <laughs> City of the Ancients key to the magical riddle music box that once you put it in chimes play and platforms lower and remember how we talked about in this area before when you go down to the city of ancients you're actually underneath water right Mm -hmm. well this rearrangement of the stones and of, of sort of the setup of the building allows the water from above you to pour down over this another uh, another altar type space and then the whole gang can walk into it, and it's just this kind of amazing magical water projector screen. Uh, it's this weird magical memory tube that they have, where they walk in, and Cloud actually has this line where he says, "Hope may be inside," or dot dot dot. Uh, but ultimately, what they do is. Uh, they see a movie from earlier in the game. They see the end of disc one. They, they're played the end of disc one with Aerith there praying. But the camera focuses in more intently on the materia. And they realize that was holy. It's not even the materia that we need. It's not like we got to get to the bottom of the ocean and, and climb and, and pull it out and use. She casts holy. That's what she was doing there. She knew what she had to do, Cloud says, but it cost her her life, her future. I'm reminded a a little bit of uh, Final Fantasy II and Minwoo going off to find Ultima, or Final Fantasy IV and, and Tella striving to get his memories back so he can cast Meteor, right? Like, it's, it's those two things. It's, it's it's finding finding the solution uh, in in whatever magical method they've got, and for both of those, you know, for Minwoo and Tella, they also don't survive, right? So that yeah, that Aerith made this choice, knowing she had to come here to cast the spell with the, and I'm using air quotes, materia that does nothing. Right. Yeah, it, she she's already 
done the, the part. Now She's done her part, right? Now, now we, as the rest of Avalanche, have to figure out how to, to let it happen. And that's exactly what Cloud says next. I, I love this little grouping of dialogue. It's a huge moment for Cloud personally. And it's, you know, the recollection of everything that's gone on here. He says, I'm sorry, Aerith. I should have figured it out sooner. He was a little messed up in the head. Right. You left without saying a word. It was all so sudden. I couldn't think. I understand now. I'll do the rest. And then Barrett pipes in with, that's we. That's right. That's uh. important. We will do the rest. I was actually reminded of a moment I really loved in Lovecraft Country. Phenomenal show on HBO. Uh, starring Jonathan Majors, who's Kang the Conqueror now in the MCU. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, all this, he's kind of like a chosen one in Destiny, kind of like a Final Fantasy main character in that one. There's a point, like, in eighth episode where the girl says, would you stop acting like everything that is happening is just happening to you? Yeah, <laughs> and like, exactly. And Barrett, yeah. And then Tifa pipes up with, again, using the word we, Aerith gave us this chance. We shouldn't waste it. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I think that's a, I do kind of, I, w- I would like to get over the trope a bit of the chosen one, whomever it may be, Cloud or Harry Potter or Steven Universe or even She-Ra, right? Like, you got, you've built this team, right? You've got these friends. Like you said, it's not just about you. And, and I, I would kind of like some of our heroes to learn that lesson a little earlier. Yeah. But, uh, but I do like when the lesson is learned. Right. But of course, the conflict still exists. So if Aerith cast Holy, what's going on? And Cloud says, Aerith's voice has already reached the planet. Look at the glow of the white materia. It's already that pale green that Bugenhagen told us about. Something is getting in its way. Ellipses. Yeah. Him. I wish it was just all caps. Just... <laughs> right. Yeah, and then he says, you know, Sephiroth, where are you? And then in this moment, again, the, the clunkily delivered total baby face turn where Kate Sith is now suddenly helping us and not just holding Marlene hostage. And, I, you know, we'd love to know where that changeover came. But we get the call. Kate Sith tells us that Rufus has moved the Junan cannon to Midgar in order to try to kill Sephiroth. That's his next move. That's the plan. They're going to take that cannon that was in Junan, move it to Midgar, because they've used up all their huge material, right? We've got their stuff. They can't use huge material anymore, so they're going to use all of the reactors of Midgar. They need a huge Mako supply. Well, there's a bunch there. They supply most of the world. They're going to put the cannon... Again, so great... I feel like the way they justify Cloud not remembering or the party not thinking, oh yeah, Aerith was doing something. That all makes sense. The justification... As much as it's a silly thing to take a giant weapon of mass destruction and place it on top of your metropolis. (laughs) Uh It's a very silly anime thing to do. They also do justify it pretty well. Like, well, they need to use all the reactors. Right, and there's, what, eight reactors there? Yeah, left... Even the one that Avalanche blew up is <laughs> yeah. kind of worse. Yeah. So, 
you know, we get this scene where the head honchos at Shinra are again arguing over the power and the output of the weapon and whether or not it's going to work. And not in like a should we or should we not do this, but, you know, Heidegger and Scarlet and Rufus are just talking about whether or not they've got enough power if they need to wait long enough. In fact, Scarlet is actually most interested in branding because she wants to make sure that this is now no longer <laughs> called the Mako Cannon. This is now the Sister Ray. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Goodness gracious. These, these people, man. So, and then we just hear this basic, this huge uh-oh from Kate Sith. Like, absolutely concerned. We are in imminent danger all of a sudden. And then there's this back and forth between Barrett and Kate Sith, because, of course, Barrett's worried about Marlene again. And, it, and it's a great way to keep reminding us here. Again, I feel like in the remake, it's going to be more present. In the original, you could forget about Marlene for long stretches of time. Yes, you could. And then he'd be like, hey, what about my daughter? And he'd be like, oh, right. And Kate just says, oh, she's with Aerith's mama. You go, okay. Um, and then this is a really weird time for Kate Sith and Barrett to get into a fight. It's like, are we going to do this right now? Because they're back on the high wind and they're they're headed back toward Midgar and they're trying to figure out what the problem is and and you know they're they're gonna shoot the, this cannon off or whatever. But Barrett and Kate Sith get into this argument right here in this moment where Barrett's just not having it from his like not hearing his response or whatever. And then Kate Sith gives it to him, dude. He says, Hey, how many people died when you blew up the reactor? And Barrett's just like Hey, look, man, yeah, a few people died, but it was for the good of the planet. And I'm not taking lectures from a Shinra person. You know, and, and then Kitsith has this nice little line about, like, I can't do anything about the fact that I'm in Shinra. Now, this would be a great conversation if had much earlier in the game. <laughs> right, right. Uh, because, I mean, there there is a certain amount of, you know, it is a, a common... Oh, hypothetical, right? If you lived in Germany in the 19, late 1930s, right, would you have put up with what the Nazis were doing? Would you have turned a blind eye to the Holocaust? And we all want to say no. Of course not. But how, you know, how many people were part of did. the party yeah. just because that's what we did? Yeah. You know, that that's that's what everyone was doing. You were You were part of the Nazi party because that was the big political party that was going to bring glory back to Germany and the economy sucked and all these foreigners were coming in. And, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like Kate Sith or whomever might be behind. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that next episode, but yeah. Is in that I'm of two minds. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm like, what are you going to do? Like if you want to secure peace and prosperity for you and your family, the only thing to do in Midgar is to work for Shinra because they're the ones with the jobs. And if you resist them, they will arrest you. All right. Like if you live in Putin's Russia right now, are you going to stand up to Putin? Some people do and they get poisoned. Right. I would like to think that I would be standing out there in the snow with these guys saying, yes, we need to have free and fair elections. But also, I, I honestly don't know. Like I've got a family to protect, right? Right. So, you know who's got the proper perspective on this? Because it's not either of these two guys. It's a woman. The woman in the room. Yes. Because, and actually just before this, Kate Sith had um, let us know that, uh, you know, the, 
they're now in imminent danger. And again, the reason that Barrett was worried about Marlene is that a, a weapon is headed toward Midgar. It's a diamond weapon. We don't really know that at the time, but it's a big, another one of these giant Godzilla type monsters headed right for Midgar, right? And so Tifa back to don't worry, think. Uh, <laughs> you know, except she's got to worry about this because now these, these two people are having a very legitimate fight, right? Barrett and Kate Sith. And Barrett's not willing to show any remorse about the people they killed in the bombings. And Kate Sith's not going to apologize about being in Shinra because about what, everything you just described, he feels like, you know, that's all I can do. And Tifa says, what we did was wrong. And you, you care about the people of Midgar. I don't know anything else, but I know two truths here. And I love that she just cuts through the bullshit. Like, we can fight about who's right, who is wrong, and we can relitigate everyone's entire lives. But right now, we've got a problem to solve. We have to, though, admit, because, you know, this person worked at shit. And he goes, how many people died when you blew that reactor up? We, you know, were some of his friends working there? It, Barrett's not totally clean here. So she says, we did a wrong thing. I know you care about the people of Midgar. So let's work together. Let's try to stop Diamond Weapon. As it very, very slowly, because it's huge. <laughs> right. Marches toward Midgar. And, you know, we fly up alongside it in the high wind. Decide to do, you know, the Final Fantasy JRPG hero thing to do and fight it, I guess. Right. Stop it from getting there. <laughs> sure. Sure. Pull up in front. You have a battle with it that you can either get absolutely destroyed in or you can technically win, you know, the fight. But you can't you can't stop it. You can just slow it down a little right. bit. Because it's not just a JRPG moment. It's also a big Godzilla moment. We've had a few. And the, like every time the military tries to blow up Godzilla, like it just makes things worse, right? <laughs> right. But this really is the classic. This is another great great scene that we're going to get here uh, another all-timer in Final Fantasy knows how to do visual storytelling and this is just a treat this is the eye candy this is the type of stuff they sold this game on the blockbuster concept right so we get an even bigger version of a scene that we got earlier essentially when Ruby Weapon attacked Junin so again we get the, the kind of Star Wars Death Star parallel, right? Where we, we've got the anticipation of the super weapon heating up, warming up, everything that has to go into making this thing work. So first, we get the camera pans around the outskirts of Midgar and all of the Mako reactors light up one by one, shooting huge spurts of green energy into the sky. And then they channel all of that energy through these giant tubes into the cannon that's been placed on Shinra Tower. And all of the lights in Midgar go out. Remember, Midgar is a city like larger than New York City, right? So we're talking a metropolis, millions of people in it. All of the energy of that city basically gets channeled into this cannon that's been posted on its central tower and it fires the green-bluish energy bolts, and it's just the most impressive. Like, it's one shot that sends a blackout for an entire city. Oh, my God. Incredible. 
And then, right, but does it work? <laughs> right. But then we cut <laughs> to Diamond Weapon, who does something that he would do many years later in the film Kingsclave. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the same thing, right? So those of you who seen the Final Fantasy XV Kingsclave, apparently Diamond Weapon has like these shoulders that can kind of open and I guess, separate. Yep. <laughs> Uh, he's almost more like a, a transformer than a, a Godzilla. He looks kind of mechanical, even though I, I think he's supposed to be entirely organic. But it's Mecha Godzilla is what's happening. This is sure, <laughs> this sure. Is or, or a giant Blastoise, right? Blastoise has cannons on his shoulders. Yeah, and and in a very similar fashion, fires out energy blasts from his shoulder. Just a ton of them. No, no preamble, by the way. He didn't need to to gather the energy or do anything of that. He just opens his shoulders powers out all of that energy, right? And this is also really well done because our team had to be out at the City of the Ancients so we can have the two perspectives. The bad guys are in Midgar and we care about Midgar from the beginning and we're going back and forth because I get the sense and they're just kind of cutting back and forth. But that diamond weapon is still miles and miles and miles away. Yeah. Right? But that they're having this fight across just an enormous expanse. And that our characters are witnessing the diamond weapon portion of it because they're, you know, we just fought against him. We're in the airship now looking out there. And so they watch right as the cannon smashes diamond right in the chest. Sends it flying. I don't know if it's feet or miles or how far when stuff's that big. Right. Uh, It's hard to tell. Cuts right through it, but keeps going. And our characters go, that's kind of strange. It cut right through them and it's headed toward the North Crater. And we remember they armed the thing and were aiming it at Sephiroth. They didn't know they were about to be attacked. It just worked out that way. So it actually, the cannon fire goes further on and appears to destroy a force field over the North Crater that was keeping people out. Right. And so that's going to be helpful for the future. And you have this moment of, wow, it appears as though Diamond Weapon has been destroyed and that the North Crater has been opened up. So good job, Rufus, Heidegger, and Scarlet. Way to go, Shinra. I I guess so. You did good. And maybe they did. But in that moment, we then cut back to Midgar because the energy blast that the weapon had released is still on its way. And it reaches town including blowing up most of Shinra Tower. And we get this close-up on Rufus's eyes as he just looks out the window, watches the destruction appear, and seems to kind of accept it. And in the original game, and he dies here. like <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Totally dead. We, we 100% accept like the expanded universe. We'll get it. It's canon that he got out and, and fine. And I love Rufus. So he gets to be in advent children and other stuff. And I don't have any problems with it. But when we played this in 1997, right. it, Dude is dead. he was dead as hell right here. This, it was clear that Rufus <laughs> finally did one good thing with his spoiled rotten life where he'd been such a bastard for so long. And in this moment, he does actually, make it so that we can solve the problem in the end. He he gives his life for the cause. Uh, sure. So maybe a little less Rockefeller, a little more Carnegie. Yeah, there you go. We've been going back and Damning forth. Damning with faint praise. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. But 
that he did devote his final act of, well, anything really, to protecting the city and, and giving hope that our heroes can save the planet. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by reaching out to us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod. You can email FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. And of course, the best way to get a hold of us is on Patreon at patreon.com slash FFWeekly, where you can find all of our episodes and content, and also over at patreon.com slash Productions for more Final Fantasy content, other video games, other nerdy stuff, and even sports. Make sure you join us next time when we conclude one of the greatest stories ever told in a video game.